Hello, David Vines. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on to our podcast. Pleasure. Um, we'd like to start off by having you introduce yourself and maybe talk about some of your research interests. I'm someone who began my life, uh, believe it or not, about three miles from here in Oxford, uh, born of Australian parents. And I grew up and went to a university in Australia and studied economics. And studying economics in Australia, uh, I thought that I'd like to end up in a policymaking position in Australia and I should go off and first of all and find out how the rest of the world works. And here I am still many years later trying to figure out how the rest of the world works. But I've had quite a lot of connections with policy actions in Australia. I've worked because of my international background on international macroeconomics and international institutions, the reform of the International Monetary Fund, the way the World Bank works. I've published a lot on European Monetary Union and I've thought quite extensively about the World Trade Organization. Uh, but also I do straightforward macroeconomics. Uh, I've worked on monetary policy and also on, on the great global financial crisis of 10 years ago. All right. And you're still putting out work that is very topical, such as your paper recently with, your, with a team of like, including your son and a colleague at Balliol College about stratified testing. So I think we'll hop right into the first question, which is what, what, what led you to write that paper about this model focusing on stratified testing and this policy recommendation? And what, what makes it so much better than the universal testing approach put forward by Romer a few weeks well, ago? Well, uh, like everyone in this country, I think that ending lockdown and emerging from the crisis is going to depend on having a, a, an important, uh, well-organized testing strategy. When I say important, well-organized and, and, and well-functioning testing strategy with tracing of contacts. And uh, the policy achievements in this country have been such a shambles that when Paul Romer uh, gave a lecture on this in uh, a Princeton series of lectures about the COVID crisis. I thought I should watch. He was advocating universal ra random testing of the whole population. And he claimed that you could do this at huge expense every fortnight and uh, would drive the R number of the uh, COVID uh, virus down below one and make it possible to solve the problem. I did some calculations quite quickly with my son, who's a statistician, and decided that these numbers just weren't right. And that led to us assembling a team of people, uh, which, which has come to the view that you need to test everybody in a population about once a week, certainly not just once a fortnight. And secondly, that you need to do it ra not randomly, but periodically, the same person over and over again, like once a week. And I think once a week's about the right time. But, but for some people who are very exposed, you need care workers in, in old people's homes, doctors, you test them every day. And so, so stratified testing uh, areas where it really matters very frequently and regular rather than random. That's, that's our work. I had a question. Um, it's a two-pronged question about the SPI modeling in SAGE. 
The first being that the first thing I noticed right off the bat is that it's dominated by modelers and epidemiologists, the SPI model. And there's really not a lot of focus on public health. So the two things that I felt and the paper that you sent me, which we link in the description, highlighted that there was an overemphasis on the political aspect and less on the public health aspect. And secondly, we already know that the pandemic affects women and children and people of color disproportionately, but SAGE and the SPI model didn't really account for this in their model. So just a few thoughts on that. Clearly, uh, the uh, interaction between uh, policymakers, that's to say politicians and scientists is very important. And we've had interesting experience of this in economics. Uh, 20 years ago and before, uh, let's say 30, 40 years ago in the hey Keynesian uh, heyday, economists believed they could really fine tune the economy uh, in a way that they're no longer confident uh, of being able to do. Furthermore, in this intervening period, which economists have become more, um, what's the word I want, cautious or, or humble even, um, we've, we've learned uh, that what you promise uh, has to be delivered on and, and policy makers that promise things which they deliver on can really make a huge difference. And in this country, we're watching a complete shambles of, of uh, promises that aren't believed and a, a lack of confidence uh, about, take the specific example, workers in care homes for old people where infections are very serious, unable to be tested, even though they were promised. I would be frightened uh, in those circumstances. And I think we need to be sympathetic to the people who've been put in those circumstances. As to your second question, uh, there is a lot of, uh, I think the answer is we don't know. It looks as if, uh, there's partly genetic factors, but there's also partly social uh, circumstances and poverty. People who are poor and obese um, are much more likely to have difficulty. And these are questions of public policies and, and, and public health, as you say. Following up on that, there's been a lot of econ economists who suggested COVID could lead to long-term belief scarring and make existing capital obsolete. So where do you see the long-term belief scarring for COVID going? It's very serious. A um, lot of people your age uh, have a serious prospect ahead of them. Uh, when I emerged from university in the early 70s, there were opportunities in a growing economy uh, for everybody. Uh, I think that the regular interviews we see with young people who've lost their jobs and lost the sense of confidence that they will ever be able to find a job that uses their skills. Very tragic interview two days ago on the BBC of someone proudly just started work as a biological researcher. On, on a, I think a short-term contract. End of contract, he said, any chance that I'll get a job like this again? No way, I have no idea what, what I will 
end up doing. And, and the crucial point is that it's very likely that people like him may well uh, end up in a lower level from which they can ever, never escape packing shelves for Amazon in warehouses with, with the training to do something much better. That, that's my understanding of belief scouring and I think it's very, very important. One thing that follows up from when you talked about stratified testing is that that leads naturally to thinking about different sectors and which, sec which employees in different sectors would be more at risk of getting coronavirus. And that leads naturally, naturally to a question of like, which sectors are gonna be hit the most by this crisis? And the, dual, the flip side of that is, which sectors will need the most help? Right. Huh. It's and very, I chuckle because like many new things, um, much of what's happening, we don't yet understand. This is new. Macroeconomics has never looked like this since, since long before I was born, let alone since when I was practicing. Let me just describe to you crucially the difference between let's say tourism, where it's not a, 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 a matter that um, people can no longer carry out the services of providing uh, tourism. People just don't want to go on holiday. They're frightened of doing that. Um, uh, uh, or, or, uh, and, and even, now let me be a bit more careful. Even when the lockdown ends, there will be people whose uh, behavior and uh, no well let's let me be straightforward whose income has fallen so much that they won't be able to afford the old kind of tourist activities that they did demand for those activities will fall and the problem will be a shortage of demand but at the other extreme there are activities in the economy which are fundamentally con supply constrained uh, our bicycle shop down the road just is shut. And when Jane wanted to fix her bicycle, uh, in the end, we managed to find a way of doing it, but it took a week and lots of phone calls rather than that supply constraint. Um, and, and supply constraints and demand constraints interact in economies in complex ways that macroeconomics are only just beginning to to understand that's just just as I found the global financial crisis uh, 10, 12 years ago fascinating uh, and tragic and and felt huge sympathy with the people affected. But it was a huge opportunity for someone like me to do interesting work. The same as same as happens now. Yeah, sure. Well, continue continue on that line of thought about these different constraints from the supply and demand side on future economic growth. I believe that Nanya ha uh, was talking to me about how this crisis is gonna leave demand as the main constraint on, on the recovery. How the Correct. And basically I was reading a really interesting um, piece by the ex-governor of the RBI, Raghuram Rajan, who thinks that we'll be seeing disinflationary pressures instead of inflationary pressures. And he thinks that there'll be a much greater depression in demand rather than a fall in supply. Another thing that I wanted to speak let about... Me, let me just pick sure. up on that for a minute. That takes me back to my distinction between uh, tourism and the bicycle shop. Uh, and, 
and I think there's going to be a huge amount of the economy that is held back by shortage of demand. I started off by saying people will be less well off and will be uninclined to spend their money in the same way that they used to and demand will fall, take tourism. But this will be such a catastrophic effect on the well-being, let's put that on one side, just the income of so many people, 30 million people all of a sudden unemployed in America with a very ill-conceived income support system, they're going to be able to buy much less. Now, uh, if I were a car producer, would I be expecting people to buy a lot of cars? Would I be investing in a new car, car factory? No way. Um, and you just go across every industry in the economy and ask, when will the confidence of the economy growing again uh, rise enough for there to be confidence of investment? And, and successful of growing economies have a very important match between investment, new productive equipment, new capital, new facilities, new infrastructure on the one hand, and rising demand for those things going alongside it. And getting those two things back into balance in a growing way is over the next, not one year or two years, but five and even 10 years is going to be really challenging. Correct. And that brings me to something that I find that I'm split about personally. Uh, we see a lot of governments trying to freeze the economy and to put it in a coma, and then they'll unfreeze it and see what happens a few months down the line. And these are well-intentioned, sure, but I feel that they're doing a disadvantage to the people whose jobs they're freezing because we know that we should allow at some point for a transition to the new jobs that will be there in the post-COVID economy. Um, this is something that I think we'd love to hear your thoughts about. And just to add to that for a bit of context, who should the government be helping? Because while we know that small and medium enterprises are obviously going to be helped, but what about sunset sectors? Where a lot of firms from, yeah. Let's take those, those two questions um, together. Uh, it, it, uh, and I'm going to say something um, uh, in two parts, uh, and the radical part will come second. Let me say something which, which is, it, it will seem very conservative um, about in the immediate short run, in, in, in avoiding collapse, making the downturn as small as it can be, beginning to generate the recovery, requires two things. First of all, uh, government support for people who have to stay at home. That's why the British furlough scheme, 80% of the pay of many people, for example, including my son, who's a chef, uh, one of my sons, uh, the other, another one of my sons is, is, works in IT and he's not on furlough at all. They're, they're as busy as can be doing stuff. The vista, uh, differs between sectors, but support for people's wages uh, when they can't go to work is crucial. The surprising thing I'm going to say is that there also needs to be support for companies at all levels, not just small, but large as well. Uh, where 
when you think about what the expenses of a company are, they're roughly speaking about two thirds labor, but one third is rent, uh, maintaining their capital equipment, you know, buying a new air conditioning system for silly example. Uh, <laughs> Uh, um, and, and uh, paying debt interest and looking after the needs of shareholders, uh, all of those things uh, cost money. And if you don't provide support for companies, there are many, very many companies doing good things that will simply go bankrupt. And these are companies uh, who, when the recover, you know, I talked about one day investment and infrastructure and resources will go again rising with demand. These are companies that would, if you like, be a happy part of that eventual new celebration. We don't want them to go bankrupt in the middle. Uh, so, uh, right in the middle of this is Richard Branson and Virgin Airlines. Uh, I support airlines being given heaps of money at the minute and that means heaps of money to rich people in a way that won't be politically popular of course you you get me considering each case in detail uh, but look what an explosion of complication that is can you imagine the treasury in in, in whitehall having to investigate in detail every country and company in the country to see whether they're deserving enough to provide support, knowing that outside their front door of their office is just heaps of people who are going to go bankrupt nearly tomorrow about which something has to be done. Huge demands. Now, the second part of your question, what's the new after the COVID world going to look like? There's a huge opportunity for this becoming a Green New Deal. We so obviously need a new deal uh, and uh, the climate change problem is, is such a fundamental one, uh, Trump and the climate deniers notwithstanding. The science is now absolutely clear and the race to fix the problem is, is, is really on. Uh, we know that renewable energy is now cheap enough for this to be doable. It won't be cheap. But then all of a sudden, after COVID, we're going to need new things because some of the old things are going to change. And I'm in danger of going off into a whole long story about changes in our social structure. But let me just make one point. I'm finding working from home works very well. For the last six weeks, I've had heaps of meetings on Zoom. I'm in very close contact with all my colleagues. We're doing stuff together. Uh, I was saying to my wife at lunchtime today, it's all very well for me in Oxford. I only ever had to ride my bicycle 10 minutes to get to work anyway. But people who commute for an hour and a quarter in London aren't going to want to go back to doing that. And they will have found that they can work two, three days at home a week. That's going to totally change all of those industries. And you ask, What's going to take its place? And I've given you the hopeful answer that the Green New Deal and doing something about climate will step in. Uh, of course, I have to say that this requires leadership. Uh, what Roosevelt did in the US didn't happen by accident without Roosevelt. 
in the 1930s was because of astonishing leadership by a sense of, of a man who had a uh, some idea of what was possible. We've been talking a lot about fiscal policy and the balance that we have to strike between maintaining cont continuity of economic relationships and then seizing the opportunity to like, bring about parts of the Green New Deal. But why do we turn to monetary policy? So what's so different about the mon monetary policy response this time around in this crisis from central banks? We're, we're already at zero interest rates, roughly speaking. <laughs> Uh, that's that's a simple, easy answer, uh, and uh, effective monetary policy in these circumstances, and we've learned a lot from the global financial crisis about this, has two parts. First of all, ensuring that there's adequate liquidity, and we haven't had a liquidity crisis at all. Uh, yet, um, six, nine months down the line, uh, there's much to worry about. But what that means is that the central bank makes sure that financial markets don't seize up. Uh, why do I say there's a fear of this? If all these heaps of companies uh, whose CEOs are queuing up outside the tr Treasury in Whitehall, in my previous answer, go bankrupt, the, that's going to make things difficult for not just banks but bond markets and, and and the share market and there will be highly leveraged companies that default you see i'm beginning to describe a circumstance where there might be a real freezing up of financial markets we learned in 2008-9 how to act well in those circumstances and that's a central part of monetary policy. The second thing we've learned is that even when the interest rate is zero, the central bank can do, or very nearly zero, the central bank can still do a lot by buying longer term government bonds and increasingly already we're seeing buying not just government bonds but corporate bonds in order to keep down long term interest rates and make it possible for companies to do long-term borrowing to finance investment without paying very high risk premia and very high interest rates. Um, two, two parts of monetary policy, but to, to come back to you uh, the, on the central part of your question, Rocco, I think that Keynes is absolutely alive and well in these circumstances. When we've got such a shortage of demand to pick up on what Alan was talking about earlier. Uh, government spending on actual buying stuff is important as well as government giving money to workers so they get income and getting, giving money to firms to, so they don't go bankrupt. And, and of course, I would say this with my Green, Green New Deal hat on, wouldn't I, that part of what the government needs to do is infrastructure on um, renewable energy and uh, and here's a start we know that a very significant part of uh, consumption of energy in this country uh, comes from old-fashioned central heating systems in houses 
a huge expenditure, not actually of government employees going out and changing the heating systems in every house in the country, but the government spending money uh, to enable private firms to do this. Uh, that's a Green New Deal that's a spending of money uh, and could be very valuable. Of course, you will ask me, what about all those other infrastructure projects? Will we ever see a, a, a fifth runway at Heathrow or a seventh runway? I'm not even sure we'll see a third runway. <laughs> and and um, I'm, not sure, I'm not even sure we'll see HS2. Um, but almost certainly we'll need to see uh, expenditure on infrastructure for the north of England so that the areas uh, in Britain, which have been so subject to poverty, uh, are helped. And again, that's big fiscal expenditure, to answer your question. And I think that... Sorry, thanks. Um, I mean, the fiscal deficit numbers are going to look ugly, no matter what, in the wake of this pandemic. And I think it's about what you can do without a significant collapse in currency and avoiding a rapid increase in interest rates. So again, a two-part question for you about the currencies that have been taking a hit. The Mexican peso, the South African rand, the Indian rupee has actually held up decently well. So my question is, what do you think about these currencies that because they're taking such a hit, that actually seems to be good for these central banks on a domestic level because they're escape walls to these emerging economies to absorb the devaluation of the growth. And the second part is that the long-term aspect is that countries like Mexico are scared that their FDI is going to fall by 40% and investors are increasingly losing confidence. So what do you think about the long-term prospects for these currencies? Um hugely important issue. Notice that up till now, we haven't done any of what I most enjoy doing, because as I said, I've ever since I was a student thought most of all about international problems in economics. The um, lessons that we can learn from the ending of the Second World War and the building of the new international system, uh, often called the Bretton Woods system, is enormously important. Uh, and Keynes was asked why he concentrated so much on uh, the building of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and not centrally about uh, the trading relations between countries. And what Keynes says, said was, you need to do both. You can avoid protectionism and uh, uh, be in a growing economy in which trading is working between countries well, but only if the macroeconomics is properly managed. That's what he got famous for in his general theory, but it's what the Bretton Woods system built for the post-war world a world in which there were not international financial crises and countries in, in, in the kind of difficulty that you've just described had an international supportive system which uh, knew how to manage their position. What we're going to require is huge international lending 
in the short term to enable Mexico, um, India, South Africa, that'll do those three examples, uh, spend a very large amount of money on dealing with this COVID crisis. Uh, the, uh, the kind of amount of money that would, if there wasn't international support, simply cause a run on the currency in the crisis. That's, clear, uh, that's clearly what is necessary, but do you think that, that that's what's actually going to happen? That there's going to be the political will in rich countries to ensure that these developing countries have access to those funds? Uh, that's the right question to ask. I think I've always thought of my job um, as an economist to first of all try and figure out what's necessary and then tackle the politics of trying to achieve it. And this is also new and, and surprising that we're still working 24-7 trying to figure out what, what is necessary. Uh, what will allow enough confidence to return in Mexico so that foreign direct investment won't just completely shrivel up? Uh, what will enable India to continue its rapid growth uh, once the immediate um, burden of the COVID, I'm talking now not just the next six months, but two, three years out after, the, after now, what's going to get India back to a rapidly growing circumstance? Um, it, uh, it's going to require an open international trading system that, in, uh, that creates opportunities for Indian exports and, uh, and, and foreign direct investment and the bringing of new technology uh, so that the, uh, I'm now in danger of having a long discussion about India, the, but, but the, <laughs> the particular issue there is to generalize, India has uh, very important opportunities for a well-educated few but to create a growth strategy in India that, that meets the rest of the 1,200, 1,400 uh, million people in India is it, it is is huge challenge. And that will only work in a growing world which is cooperative. Some stats that you'd like to share about, for example, what you're doing right now. Since my main research interests are debt finance, I was looking at Italy and what happens when the ECB stops buying Italian debt and the Italian government seems to be conscious of this obviously and they're trying to shift the focus to ordinary citizens putting the bill for the recovery effort and it's pretty bad the situation in Italy to say the least. Deutsche Bank predicts that the debt to GDP ratio is going to be 200% by the end of the year and the problem that the COVID pandemic faced, like, has proposed for Italy now is that the three normal paths that the Italian government would have, growing GDP, austerity, and inflation, those seem to be thrown out of the window. So what do you think about the shift in from buying the ECB buying Italian debt to asking its ordinary citizens to put the bill? And of course, this ties to who's going to fit the, put the bill for emerging markets, because there's a long-term prospect of taxes increasing drastically. So just your thoughts on the long-term outlook of fiscal and monetary policy in Italy and just the weaker European Union economies. This is, um, let's, let me answer the question deliberately backwards. The time for fiscal austerity is after the recovery has gathered strength. Uh, we, 
made a huge mistake uh, after the global financial crisis. Uh, in 2009, there was an agreement in London led by Gordon Brown and Barack Obama to inject fiscal 2% of world GDP at that one meeting and to provide confidence that the economies would begin to grow again. Uh, in 2010, the austerity maniacs took control. Uh, the Republicans knifed those, and I use the word advisedly, those advising Barack Obama, um, the, the Wolfgang Schäuble uh, with the history of, of, of hyperinflation in Germany could think about nothing else except the size of public debt in Europe. And Britain made a catastrophic mistake in, um, in going for austerity, which has given us Brexit, which will cost <laughs> an order of magnitude or twice that, uh, like a hundred times the things that people were then complaining about. Um, so do not do austerity until the recovery is secure. Um, that means that the public debt will be very large. And we have experience of this after the Second World War, where countries emerged, Britain emerged from the Second World War with much higher public debt as a proportion of GDP than it, the frightening case of Italy now. It was about nearly 250%. Um, and it took a generation to bring that level of debt down. You do it slowly and you do it by growing. Um, and what, what do we need uh, for emerging market economy? So, so that's my, I mean, let me talk about Europe first and then emerging market economy. Um, the, which metaphor should I use? But I will say the chickens are really going to come home to roost now about the meaning of the European Monetary Union. Uh, economic history of that, the origin of that, uh, was that it was a union imposed on Germany by Mitterrand's France. Germany could have reunification if the French got monetary union. And the French wanted this because they felt that monetary union would enable them to sit at the top table in making policy in Europe uh, for the next 25 years uh, and not be subservient to the German economy. But the problem with this political deal done at the time was that Germany never accepted the responsibility that comes with uh, being the dominant state in a monetary union. The dominant state in the monetary union is under an obligation not to bail out Greece and Ireland and Spain, but to insure them against shocks. Uh, that's what a monetary union is. It's a risk-sharing operation. Why? Because when you're in trouble, you can't devalue your currency. And, and so monetary union requires the dominant na uh, nation to say, I am now joining a monetary union and I promise to uh, fulfill my obligations. And that Germany has refused ever to do. This will be the test. And, and, and what that means is that 
Italy will need to be able to support the kind of fiscal expenditure that we're uh, seeing in Britain. And the European Central Bank and the other institutions of the European community will need to support Italy in ensuring that there's not a run on Italian public debt in these circumstances. And that's going to be, that's the test for Europe over the next two years. Uh, of course, there is a, a um, related, different but related test about the uh, 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 sustainability of the openness of the single European market. I'm much less worried about that. I think that there's a pr political acceptance of, of in European countries that they must recognize that there will be competition against their firms from efficient firms in other parts of Europe. That's now accepted. But this set of obligations in the monetary union is the $64 million question about, about the future. Right. Let's go emerging markets. Um, uh, <laughs> the trouble is that when you do that, you end up looking someone called President Trump in the face. Uh, because the thing that we learned after the global financial crisis was the huge importance of support for emerging market economies when uh, they're in trouble, as, as they will be. And we talked about that earlier because of the huge fiscal burden which the crisis, the COVID crisis, will, will impose. Uh, and that requires a well-funded international monetary fund that is um, not opposed at every move by the US. And, and, and very detailed work has been done about what happened in Asia during the Asian financial crisis and then at the time of the global financial crisis. In both of those um, cases, US leadership was absolutely crucial in avoiding in ensuring that there wasn't a meltdown. And so we're, globally, we're looking at a President Roosevelt moment and uh, the demands on all of us to find such a leader or much more troublingly to work around the US because it's led by the opposition, by someone who opposes such action. Mm -hmm is going to be uh, central. So you asked me about emerging markets and I ended up talking about the world and leadership, but I think uh, that emerging markets need to be supported and, and feel that support uh, in the next three, six, nine, 12 months. Well, we end up, end up talking about the world and leadership. I think the natural transition then is to talk about, well, how does China play into all this? Like go going into the broader political picture, is China going to come? Is is China going to come out of all this in a relatively stronger geopolitical position vis-a-vis -vis America, or will will the Western liberal order somehow hang on up through this crisis? It's a good question. <laughs> we've come. We've rent, uh, arrived at the end of this discussion. That the big global question, haven't we? And it's it, it's facing us all. Uh, look at what happened in the late 19th century and the early 20th century when uh, the rise of Germany was mishandled. Uh, the Germans bore much blame 
but the British and uh, uh, and the US uh, I'll, I'll blame the US for what happened after the war. Before the war, it, the difficulty was the British not having international institutions which they could rely on to prevent the early 20th century becoming an arms race and a geopolitical struggle between the hegemon, Britain and Germany. Uh, not a good lesson. Um, the 19, after the First World War, um, there's a wonderful book by Adam Tooze uh, on that period. I can't remember its exact title, just describing how the world needed leadership from the US after the war and it got a shambles. Um, the the um, period after the Second World War is is extraordinarily interesting for an answer in part to this question. Uh, there's that, that wonderful phrase of Macmillan's, which I will misquote about how leaders in Britain sought to be the Greek leaders helping facilitate the rise of Rome. That's to say, uh, he didn't say it quite like that, but you can see that the analogy and, and the metaphor. Uh, what is crucial is to find a, a space in the world where, which accepts the rise of China. And that was the Obama strategy and, and the strategy which many people that I've worked with in Australia and the US and Europe saw admitting China to, to the WTO and, and welcoming China into the world economy. Uh, but that requires obligations on China too, roughly speaking, to not behave in the way that the Germans behaved in the run up to the First World War. And um, the present leadership in China is, to put it mildly, disappointing uh, uh, in, in not having um, a very clear strategy. Uh, I want to, I, I, I will now misquote Deng Xiaoping enormously, and I'm not even sure that it was him, saying for the China uh, strategy, we need first to look out inwards and only open outwards when we're confident of how to do it. And uh, the Chinese are not confident and don't know how to become not the hegemonic leader, but to accept shared, shared hegemony uh, in, in the world. Uh, and you look at me and say, well, Dave, it's all very well to say all this, um, but, but um, that's in danger of sounding like hot air. Uh, what does someone who aspires to uh, to hope for a, a, a solution to this problem so that in 20 years' time we will still have, or, or no, let's say again have a well-growing world economy which is producing uh, well-being and happiness, particularly for the many, many people in the world who are still very poor? I, here's my way of avoiding sounding just like someone hopeful and silly. What, what liberal engagement of this kind requires is, is 
seeking common problems where you come to understand through working out in these particular problems uh, how it's advantageous to work together. And uh, that's the task that we face between, I'll add Europe, as well as the US and China, uh, seeking institutional frameworks which bring people together in crude economist language looking for Pareto improvements in which everyone can benefit in dealing with a particular circumstance. And if you do it enough times with somebody that looks like an opponent, you end up realizing that the risks of opposing them on this new problem which has come along, risks are too big because you're already working closely together on enough problems together to solve them. That's the aspiration. And I think we all, it's, 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 it's a task for your generation to bring that about now. I think that something really interesting that you said was that the time for austerity is after the recovery. And then you went on to speak about the importance for international leadership. But what do you have to say about a lot of emerging markets have a track record of fiscal indiscipline for the lack of a better word, that for yeah. example, India, after the last financial crisis, they had a very large fiscal deficit and they still haven't fully recovered in part due to the fiscal indiscipline. And this isn't unique to India. A lot of emerging markets have oh, the yeah, same problem. Yes. So what do you have to say about that? Because while cooperation is necessary, I understand why FDI is falling for so many emerging markets because investors aren't confident that these countries will demonstrate fiscal discipline now when they haven't in the past. Yeah, what's a good answer to that question? I suppose uh, I'm going to say something which sounds self-serving, uh, which is that I think economists are important in these circumstances in helping people understand uh, the benefits that come from enduring the costs of fiscal discipline. Uh, I was very hopeful um, that the previous Indian administration uh, had engendered such a significant um, climate of reform and the expectation of the continuation of reform that India would not be in the position that it is now. Um, I think that modernity requires good governance. Uh, perhaps we should close by, in, in not the way that you've expected me to close. Uh, so what we'd expected to talk about was the work which I'm doing on the future of macroeconomics as a subject, which is fascinating. But I'm not going to talk about that. Instead, I'm going to talk about something which I don't think I've ever talked to you about, uh, another book that I'm writing on the macroeconomic history of my own country, Australia. Australia emerged into the 20th century, a silly small place, big on the map, but just three and a half, four million people, colonial outpost, all they did was have sheep and grow it for London, uh, grow the wool to send to England. Um, and the, the attitudes were extraordinarily inward-looking and protectionist. And the uh, 
belief was fundamental to it, everything, that this is someone else's world managed from London and our job is somehow to tag along. Um, I often see that attitude amongst very senior people in Italy, that other people are responsible, in India, excuse me. <laughs> well, that too, but I'm not I'm talking so about Italy, um, but, but I'm talking about India, uh, that other people are responsible for how bad the world is, and this is a world that's bad for India. Uh, modernity requires acceptance of responsibility and engagement in, in building a, a better, wider world. Uh, why the book about Australia is such a fascinating um, <clears throat> story, um, with not a terribly happy ending at the minute, it's fascinating because right from the 1930s, Australia realized, Australians, and led by an extraordinary group of economists, uh, that uh, theirs was a difficult country to run because it was subject to mega shocks internationally. In the Great Depression, the terms of trade uh, collapsed by half. Export prices fell in one year to a, a, a half of what they had been. And the country which had been borrowing 10% of GDP in London every year suddenly couldn't borrow a penny. Complete crisis. Uh, and, and my country's economists led the construction of, of extraordinarily responsible and widely trusted economic governance in Australia, so that there had not been, after the global financial crisis, a collapse in the confidence of economists and a derision about the economics profession. Australia is a country that recognises that its future is, is bound up with making wise economic decisions, and that's why I think the story I'm writing is it is an interesting and valuable story for the rest of the world. This group of people led the extraordinary transformation in Australia from a very protectionist country, more protectionist than Argentina, to everything until 1980, to one of the most open economies in the world now. Um, and and Australia's sh Australians share that sense of the opportunity that it's given them subject to good macroeconomic governance, fiscal discipline. Why has this story um, got a difficult ending? Because Australia's embrace of globalization over the last 10 years has become, roughly speaking, becoming a coal mine for the world. And that future is not going to be part of the Green New Deal that we thought about earlier. And so, just like everywhere else, Australia has the enormous challenge of, 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 this is a fiscal discipline question too, how can you stop doing special favours for, for people who, who expect to be looked after whilst going on doing old fashioned uh, fossil fuel production? Yeah. Uh, so, so a long answer to your question, but it's, it's one of, of political courage and, and, and a sense of possibility. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. David Wallace, thank you. It's been a great conversation. We're looking forward very much so to the two books that you're gonna be putting out soon. Thank you very much for your time, sir. And yeah, we'll have to wish you a good evening. Thank you so much. Terrific. Bye. Bye-bye.